Good evening, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is the 25th of the 9th. I'm not here today with my friend and colleague Michael. He is sadly ill, but we will bravely push on without his Sherpa-like presence and hopefully not die horribly somewhere on the mountains. Given that Michael isn't about today, I'm going to do a, a shorter show. But there's one thing I, I really want to talk about. Well, I mean, it's immediately related to COVID-19, but it's also sort of related to an article I read in the Irish Times, which I'll link below. Uh, it came out yesterday, and it was by uh, Dr. Martin Feely. And you remember, you may remember Dr. Feely as the man who basically came out and said that COVID-19 in certain age demographics was no more dangerous than the flu. And the HSE, after he had said that, went to him told him that they had lost confidence in him and basically resigned him. He resigned, but I think the clear implication was that it was sort of a jumper be pushed. The Irish Times has him had him write him in it. He wrote an article called Young and Healthy Majority Needs to be Allowed to Live. And the subtitle is The Disease is Profoundly Different to the Spanish Flu, which was an indiscriminate killer. Now, this is particularly interesting because I know for months we've been talking about the fact media was sort of moving in perfect lockstep with the government with this. And there wasn't even really a discussion of any alternatives. I mean, when I and Michael were talking about how people should wear masks, the media was vehemently against masks, which, are, you know, obviously I continue enjoying to point out because it means they have to say we were right, which is a joy I will take. But us being right isn't really important. Why it's interesting is that for most of this, you haven't seen what you've seen in other countries like Britain or America, where there was always a sceptical element to the media. There were always papers and people kind of going, is this step necessary? Does this work? Why are we doing this? What is the rationale? For most of this period, the media has been incredibly poor at actually asking ministers, asking advisors, what is the evidence for this? What is going on? I can remember when the GAA came out and said that they would like to know, they would like to have a chat with the people who had decided that the public should not be included, allowed into stadiums, as to what the evidence that had been selected for that was, and if that was rigorous. And many people in the media decided that this was an outrageous slur and a display of arrogance that they could question them. And you know, I, I actually do agree that it is slightly outrageous. I would just disagree about why it's outrageous. It's outrageous that it got to a situation where a civic society group like the GAA had to be the people to go. What is the bloody evidence for this? What is the proof for this? And ask the questions that legitimately should have been asked by the media up to that point. And it's outrageous that they got to a situation where the media seem to just totally, totally fail at any attempt to hold the government to account. And even if you agree with the government's policies, the media does serve a useful function, or should serve a useful function, in forcing the government to explain things. And that will stop the government from doing certain things that it doesn't have evidence for, the mere fact that they know they will be questioned, and there is oversight. When you remove oversight, when you remove questions, things are going to happen that shouldn't happen simply because people know that, well, they can do these things and there will be 
no consequence for it because no one will ever find out because no one will ever be able to see exactly what's going on. As an aside here, one of the stories I've been trying to work on for a while is a story about um, China and Ireland. There are a number of places where we have what are called senior official exchange programs where officials from Ireland go over to China and it usually one would expect, but I haven't been able to get anyone to confirm this, Chinese officials would come to Ireland. And what I've been trying to do here is see if there are any safeguards in place so that if Chinese officials come over, that those people are vetted so that we know that there are forced labour camps in Xinjiang. We know that labour is being exported all throughout China. So there are administrators in each Chinese province and in many cities who are involved in... Uh, administering and overseeing forced labor programs. We know experts have said that what's happening in Xinjiang constitutes cultural genocide. Arguably, those officials working on the administration of forced labor are taking part in that cultural genocide. And therefore, it's important to know what safeguards the government has in place and all of these entities have in place so that we don't effectively bring over people with that sort of human rights record as official guests of Ireland or of a county or of a city. And it's not terribly easy to find information about this. I asked Cork County Council uh, for some information on it. I put in an FOI request. Got a wonderful request saying they'd need 500 quid to bother looking at it. But we'll see if I can appeal that. But let's say it turns out there are no safeguards. Those That will have happened because they assumed no one would ever ask questions about this and therefore it didn't really matter. We saw much the same thing with the presidency and the accounts that uh, it was said the president would release after his last election and he released something like a 60-page brochure with a couple of pages of accounts at the end and I believe those accounts had an other section which if you're giving the detailed breakdown of your expenses that you promised the electorate, you wouldn't traditionally have another section, but we did. And that was perfectly fine because the media didn't pick up on it and it wasn't seen as important. So these are just the sort of things that happen. But anyway, that's an aside. But now that seems to be kind of going, particularly in the Irish Times. And a little bit on some of the, um, the TV channels as well. There are more people popping up and going... There are alternative ways of dealing with this. Now, we're not saying those people are right, but there is now at least more of a, an acceptance that as restrictions go on and as we start to see more businesses fail, we start to see more people go to work, we start to see more people suffer the secondary consequences of uh, restricted access to medical care, mental health issues, things like that, that there has to be a debate about what exactly is happening here. So the, the Martin Feely article is interesting because it's all based around the idea of how lethal is COVID-19 actually? And shockingly enough, we don't really know. But it's something... I've, I've been trying to put together a story for Gripped over the past week and I've been trying to get information from the Department of Health and the HSE about it and I haven't gotten anywhere with it at all. I, the responses to this have been very similar to the responses I get from various departments when I write to them asking about, let's say, deals we've done with China. 
you just don't expect an answer quickly and the answer you get is either going to be heavily redacted or just going to be meaningless PR speak. But he he basically goes and does a bit of a comparison between how many people have died of COVID-19, how many people have died from flu, goes through the history of Spanish flu, also goes through the idea of um, comorbidity, the amount of people who've died of COVID-19 who have underlying conditions. And of course, there's the, you know, some people will say, well, they died of the underlying conditions and other people will make, I think, the quite good point that, well, the underlying conditions wouldn't have killed them if they didn't have COVID-19. He also makes a very good point that people aren't talking about uh, obesity as a risk factor in this, but obesity has been a significant risk, shown to be a significant uh, risk factor on this. But what I particularly liked about the article is he starts talking about how many asymptomatic people there are. And we don't know that. We don't know that either. There have been little bits of research that have been uh, pulled out. There have actually been some quite large pieces of research at this point. But it's, it's very difficult to pin this down because asymptomatic people don't know they have COVID-19. So unless you start a mass testing program, I mean nearly total coverage, you're not going to get an accurate idea of the people. But it does bring me onto the story I've been trying to put together this week. And it's related to this. The CDC put out some new research about a week and a half ago, where they looked at the question of how lethal is COVID-19 to people in different age demographics. And there's a bit of a technical point here. In Ireland, we use what's called the case fatality ratio, the CFR. Now, what the CFR is is obviously a ratio. Well, I say obviously, but I, I hope it was obvious to you. On one hand, you have the confirmed COVID-19 cases, people who have done the test and have been confirmed to have COVID-19. And on the other, you have deaths from COVID-19. And that's basically all it is. Ireland has a case fatality ratio of 4.6%, which is to say if there were 100 people who had done a who had been found to have COVID-19, then you would expect that 4.6 of them would have died. And yes, I realize 0.6 of a person can't die, at least not physically. I'm sure spiritually and mentally something like a divorce can probably split it like that. I'm not sure in that figure if, let's say, you go into a, um, a hospital and you die and they assume it was COVID-19 or you have COVID-19, but an underlying condition kills you. I'm not sure if you go into that ratio. I would suspect you do, even if you don't have a confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19. But that's basically what you have. You have the confirmed cases and you have the death. The problem there is this. We know there are a massive amount of asymptomatic people out there. So if you're only measuring the people who have gotten tested, you are looking at a particular group of people with COVID-19. You're not looking at everyone with COVID-19. Now, you'll have people who are totally asymptomatic, don't know they have COVID-19, and won't get tested. You'll also have people who have symptoms of COVID-19, but don't go and get tested because they either don't assume it's COVID-19, they think it might be a flu, something like that, or they go and test it and they get a false negative, which is effectively, sorry, a, a, yes, a false negative, which would effectively be a testing failure, but they're inevitable. All tests have a certain degree of, um, 
of positive and negative that will come back incorrectly. So put simply, the CFO could massively over-egg the amount of actually deaths we're seeing with this. Now this is, as I said, this is something that Dr. Feely goes into in his article. He talks about the Diamond Princess cruise liner and the Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier. Now both of those were cases where a, obviously a ship, was found to have COVID-19 on it. And because they are perfectly contained environments, they were sealed off and everyone on board was tested. You're looking at a 100% testing compliance. In the instance of the Diamond Princess cruise liner, 66% of the positive tests, those people were asymptomatic. They had no symptoms of COVID-19. In the Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier, you were looking again at about 66%. And there's your problem. If 65 or 70% of people who get this are asymptomatic, that means that for every three people who have this disease, seven who have this disease and have symptoms and are therefore at risk, seven have no symptoms and are not at risk. So by not counting those people, you massively overemphasize the debt rate. And that's what the CDC's new research is trying to look at. So what they do is they use a thing called an infection fatality ratio. And that is different in this way. Instead of just looking at the confirmed cases, they do what's called a best estimate of how many asymptomatic infections there are out there. And they do the ratio including those numbers. Now, this is not a new thing that's been done for COVID-19. This is a standard piece of medical statistics. There are some issues with it, obviously, and the reason that people would tend to use the case fatality ratio is, well, there's a couple. In this instance, I think it might be being used because it... I would suspect, and I have no proof of this, I would suspect it's being used because it's a bit more of a scary number. But the infection fatality ratio, you have to make an estimate of asymptomatic infections or people you're missing in testing. And... Certain people will say, well, we sh you shouldn't be making those kind of estimates because you can't be certain of it. And therefore, it's best to go with confirmed testing. And there is a point to that. But from what we've seen, the levels of asymptomatic infection are so high with COVID-19 that it doesn't seem like you can just ignore that and act as if you have in any way an accurate result. Now, the CDC did a number of scenarios laying out basically... Um, situations where the percent of infections that were asymptomatic ranged from 10 to 70 percent. They say their current best estimate is that 40 percent of infections are totally asymptomatic. Interestingly, they then go on to say that they expect that infected individuals who are asymptomatic are roughly 75 percent as infectious to others as a symptomatic carrier. They also say that they think that 50 percent of infections of transmission happens prior to the person who was originally infected developing any symptoms, which is to say that there are a ton of asymptomatic people out there. They are nearly as infectious as those who are showing symptoms. And, and across the board, 50% of uh, transmissions to another person are happening before that person can develop symptoms. So that would have no way of knowing they have COVID-19 because they have no symptoms themselves. Now, those statistics on their own to me would sort of indicate that this zero COVID approach is just not a runner. You, you could easily have a situation in which infection is spreading for six weeks and no one notices because everyone is asymptomatic. 
because you could have a two-week incubation period for each person, and then you might pick up strands of that infection, but you won't pick up all of it. You'll miss significant amounts of the infection. So it does not seem possible with those numbers to get anywhere near zero COVID or crush COVID or whatever phrase they're talking about it now. I didn't think there was much chance before these figures, but they don't paint a particularly positive option of it. The interesting thing about the infection fatality ratio that the uh, CDC brought out is it broken down by age. And this is really interesting. So basically, if you are under about 50, your survival is not assured. People will die of it. But it is not the Black Death. It's not the Spanish flu. When you look at 0 to 19, if you have COVID-19, you have a 99.997 chance of surviving. In the 20 to 49 year old group, you have a 99.98% chance of surviving. If you're in the 50 to 69 group, you have a 99.5% chance of surviving. And then if you get into the 70 plus group, then you start running into like you know, 94, 95% survival rates. That's when you actually start seeing the numbers that we would expect based on Ireland's case fatality ratio. Now, I suspect Ireland's case fatality ratio is that high because of the disaster involving nursing homes. COVID-19 spread rapidly amongst a group of people who are most susceptible to it and it killed a great deal of them. Now, having said that, there have still only been 1,537 deaths amongst confirmed cases of COVID-19 as of yesterday. If you're interested in this sort of thing, the HPSC brings out an epidemiology of COVID-19 in Ireland report every day. And they're actually, they're quite interesting. They, you know, cover a couple of... Uh, of interesting things, particularly the age of infection and the age of death. And it, you know, it's not going to stun you to find out that the infections are... They were, initially, when it was more nursing homes, infections were primarily happening amongst people who were quite old. Now, the mean age of people infected with it is about 47. So if you've been looking at the infection rates and the case numbers going up, across Ireland, particularly in Dublin, now in Donegal and a couple of places like that. And then you've also been looking at the amount of fatalities we've seen and you're sort of going, okay, infections are going up, but deaths aren't really going up. They're, I mean, they're going up slightly, but they're not the kind of numbers that we would have expected based on what we saw at the start of this. There's a very simple explanation for that. Infection is primarily spreading amongst people who are under 50. And those people have very, very high survival rates. I mean, as I said, depending on the amount of asymptomatic carriers in the actual population could be incredible survival rates. But what Dr. Feely said about there being certain age demographics for which COVID-19 is no more harmful than a very severe flu would appear to be correct, although we don't have the exact figures because you know, again, it depends how many asymptomatic people there are, how many people who have symptoms, but they're so minor they don't get tested. But his point was exactly, um, was absolutely a reasonable one to make based on the data we have available to us. So we don't know what the, the IFR is for 
Ireland. We don't know. Looking at some of the international research, I've seen IFRs that go from about 0.5 to 1.2. So that is still a significant amount of people. But the important thing to remember here is that as we can see from the CDC research, and as we've actually been able to see from fairly consistent research uh, around the globe, COVID-19, and th this was Dr. Feely's point, COVID-19 is not the same as Spanish flu, and that Spanish flu just indiscriminately killed. In fact, COVID, uh, from what I remember, Spanish flu was actually more deadly to young people. COVID-19 is very much a disease of age. There's a virus of age. If you are under about 50, you have an incredibly good chance of surviving. Even above 50, you have a fairly good chance of surviving. And the question then becomes, from a lockdown perspective, well, look, if this is something which a young person has a 99.98% .98 chance of surviving, can we lock down the entire country? on just an ongoing basis? Or is there a level of acceptable risk there where we basically have to say, well, look, there will be a certain amount of deaths, but we're not going to have bodies in the street. There's an acceptable level of death for nearly everything. For something like this, I mean, these numbers would seem to fall within it. I mean, I, I am apparently just significantly more callous with human life than Nefish and the people advising the government, who have basically said that they don't think it's ethical to allow any sort of situation where people are allowed to go out, but people are also told, look, this is your risk profile. If you are above a certain age, you should consider cocooning. You should not go to certain places. You should avoid certain things. We're not saying you can't do it, but for your health, you would be best not to do it. So we saw something similar recently in Britain, a group of scientists, physicians, academics, one sociologist wrote to Boris Johnson and asked that the British government move away from generalised lockdown. They said that the lockdowns and general restrictions on people were unfeasible and increasingly so, and that they were leading to significant harm across all age groups which likely offsets any benefits that they may be generating. The group drew particular um, particular interest to some of the results we're seeing in relation to cancer. They said that, based on what they'd seen, that you were looking at possibly an additional 60,000 deaths from cancer. They said there have been 2 million delayed or missed cancer screenings, tests, treatments, and that that could lead to an additional 60,000 deaths from cancer because early detection of cancer and consistent treatment of cancer, very important. They basically said, and these, by the way, were not nutters. They weren't graduate students. They weren't, you read some of these things, and then you go through it, and none of these people are involved in the field. None of them would know it. No, these... these was written by, there were a couple of economic people who were on it, which was interesting to see. There were four authors. Everyone else was a signatory. I think it was 32 people in total, but four authors. Of those four, one was a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford. One was the director of Oxford's Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, 
One was, a, was director of a group called Economic Insight, and one was a professor of medicine in the University of Buckingham. So not lunatics, people who know what they're talking about. Which is, again, not to say they're right. Because I think if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that oftentimes experts are not just wrong, they're kind of stupid about things. This, I think, has been one of the worst times in public health communication I can ever think of. The amount of people who are going to get out of this, which is public trust in them destroyed, is incredible. And most of them deserve it, so, you know, don't sing for me, Argentina. Anyway, the letter said that what they wanted to see was a movement away from generalised restrictions to targeted measures that protect the most vulnerable from covid whilst not adversely impacting those not at risk. What I found interesting is they also highlight what they call behavioural interventions that seek to increase the personal threat perceptions as COVID-19. Which is, that is to say, that they have a particular issue with statements and graphics and lines of research and media proposals about COVID-19 that is designed not to give you an accurate representation of how at risk you personally are from COVID-19, it's to increase your threat perception of COVID-19. It's to make you think that COVID-19 is more and more deadly. Because if you think COVID-19 is absolutely terrifying, you will comply with what they want you to do. And I don't mean that in any sort of they're taking our freedoms way. It's just what they're doing. It's, it's just what they're doing mostly in Britain. But I think when I said earlier about the case fatality ratio being the scarier number. I think there is a little bit of that. I think there is a hesitancy to give the public good information on this because then the public may turn around and go, I'm not really at risk of this and just ignore the things that are being done and the requests that are being put upon them. I mean, the letter closes. They point out that the debate on COVID-19 has become polarised between on one side people saying that COVID-19 is just shockingly deadly to everyone and there's no debate on it. There can be no questions asked about it. And if you come out and say that there are certain age demographics, let's pick an example at random, there are certain age demographics where COVID-19 is no more dangerous than a flu. Uh, You don't deserve your job and you'll be effectively sacked on one side. And on the other side, people who believe COVID is no risk, not real, or a plan by the government. And that it might be better if instead of those two sides screaming at each other, there were people in the middle who could go, okay, here are the facts and here are the figures, and we should pick something based on evidence as opposed to either fear or anger. And I think that might be a good option. Now, maybe I'm giving these people... Dr. Feely and this group of scientists, too easy ride. Because I am, I think I've been pretty consistent in saying that I don't think this curve can be flattened sufficiently. I don't think COVID can be crushed. I don't think they can get to zero COVID. And I think even if they could, they will do so much damage in doing so that we'll wish they hadn't. So maybe I'm giving them too easy an approach on this. I mean, there is a, a strong argument there that people should be made afraid because then they will comply and then that will lead to less human death and suffering. I don't agree with it. I don't think the public should be lied to outside of national security concerns. But there is an argument that we shouldn't be having this debate. 
that was, I think, the prevailing view in Irish politics political and media circles up to this point. And I'm not sure if that's changed in political circles, but it definitely seems to have changed in certain media circles. And of course, then the question becomes, well, what do you do? I would say you move away from general lockdowns and you inform people of how much risk there. You openly tell people that here are the risk factors they have. Here's the research on this. And this is the risk we think COVID-19 presents to you. It's quite interesting that we haven't released any of that data that I can find. I mean, we have put we have put out the deaths by age group, but we haven't looked at any of the, we haven't tried to put any of the uh, infection fatality rates together that I can find. As I said, I've asked the department and the HSE if they have any, even if they're internal, that I can be sent. And if they do, I'll make them public. But... I'm not sure if they would have. I think it's useful not to have them because, well, then you can only give people the higher number and that looks worse and people are more likely to do what you want. I am personally of the opinion that, uh, then again, recent polling that came out showed that 52% of people in this country think that the current restrictions don't go far enough. And they may be right or they may be wrong. Or they may be afraid. And I can't really blame anyone for any of those. Because I think the public communication of COVID-19 has been either abysmal or deliberately put forward to scare people. And I don't think the media has really done much to ask questions, to kind of position itself as an actual watchdog of government in this instance. So I can't really blame people for saying that the current restrictions aren't uh, don't go far enough or that they support the current restrictions. Anyway, without, as I said, without Michael here, I just wanted to, to briefly touch on one particular issue. And obviously, it would be good to get this information out here. But I do think it is it is time for a slightly wider conversation on who is most at risk here and who is at risk, but not severe risk. And is there a point when governments basically have to go, well, look, you make your own choices here. If you make the wrong choice and you get ill, that was your choice. Your choice will have a consequence. But then again, lockdowns also have consequences. The problem with COVID-19 is this, and it's the problem of empathy. Everyone is always like, empathy is great. Empathy is wonderful. So who has empathy? Snipers. The problem with empathy is that empathy holds up the things you can see and the stories that are really heart-wrenching while pretty much ignoring the things you can't see or the stories that aren't heart-wrenching. And so with the lockdown, you have a very immediate visual image of the people who died and you say, well, this is, you know, solving this and we've got to show empathy through those. What it doesn't take into account because it's mostly an emotional reaction which is largely driven by what you can see and what you hear, it doesn't take into account, well, you know, that woman who didn't get that cancer test in time and what would have been a close call but survivable is now lethal. Or it doesn't take into account the person whose business slowly closed. I think part of the problem we have in this country is that you can still kind of go out, you can still walk around places. And yeah, a lot of stuff is closed, but it kind of feels normal. 
But in the background, a lot of stuff is just going bang, boom, and then falling over. And a lot of the stuff that hasn't so far is getting closer. There are many businesses who can take you know, a couple more months of this. Most of them have gotten to the end of the period where they would have either been able to get loan breaks or they would have been able to push things off. The banks have very little interest in offering another payment holiday. And so a lot of these guys are just going to go bust. That's that's what's going to happen. And I suspect that what we're seeing with pubs is because the government, by and large, doesn't care that much about the hospitality sector. So not just pubs, but restaurants, hotels, those kind of places. I would suspect internally there's a report somewhere that says most of the workers there are transient. They're either foreign, they're young. They'll get a job. Like, it doesn't matter if they get a job in hotel A, B, or C. And if that one closes, another one will open as soon as things pick up. I think that is a... I don't think that's a that's an accurate representation. I think people... That there is an assumption that when this is over, well, those businesses that close, other businesses will open that do broadly the same thing and we'll... Yeah, we'll get kind of to the same place. I think that is a massive, massive issue. The idea that there will just be both the people needed to start these businesses and the amount of capital required from banking institutions and for private donors to start them readily available? I, d I don't think so. And it's far more expensive to set up a business and far more time-consuming than it is to continue running a business. So of the people whose business closed, well, why would they want to go into business again? Fail again? Or you, and have to negotiate everything and you've just had to go through maybe bankruptcy procedures. It's fairly common in Ireland. I don't know if this is well known. But it's fairly common in Ireland. It's been a while since I talked to business people, so I'll hedge this by saying it may not still be happening, but I suspect it is. Where you would go to a bank for a business loan, and the bank would agree on the condition that you personally provided some collateral or signed on to oversee that loan. And basically... What the banks are trying to do is if it's a limited company and it goes bust, the bank gets nothing. Whereas if you've done that, well, then the bank can go after you, even though with a limited company, that's not meant to be possible. So I've heard stories about business owners having to effectively let the banks have the deeds to their house to get a loan for their uh, business. And I don't see the banks becoming, shall we say, lighter touch following this catastrophe. Anyway, this has been Gary Kavanagh on TRSI. I will see you all again uh, Sunday, where hopefully Michael will be better. All the best.